bless you, everybody. Uh, wonderful to see you. We're going to get right into the text because I made the mistake of attempting to do too much, and I found this out in the last two classes that it was a mistake. I wanted to look at Genesis 42, 3, and 4. I thought it would be a good idea because it's one encapsulated story, uh, but I'm finding out it wasn't the best idea. We'll, we'll do the best we could. So as you turn to Genesis 42, let me just uh, tell you this. From a chronological point of view, um, 22 years prior to Genesis 42, Joseph was betrayed by his brothers. Just to give you a time frame. It was 20 years before what we're about to read. And during that time, I mean, they, they, they resented him. They were envious of uh, him. And they... Uh, put him in a pit for a while, and then it was recommended that they sell him as a slave. And there was a traveling caravan of traders on their way to Egypt. They sold their own brother away as property, and that's it. So for 22 years, they did not tell their father about this. In fact, uh, Jacob was their father. They told Jacob that their brother Joseph was sadly killed by a wild animal. So they've been harboring this being quiet about it for all these years. Uh, They probably didn't talk about it. They kept it to themselves. Do you know what pressure it is to carry guilt for that long? Uh, David incurred guilt with Bathsheba and wrote about it. Uh, One of the places in which he did was Psalm 51. And uh, there he said, um, when I kept silent about my sin... He said, my body wasted away, as with the fever heat of summer. Uh, Unconfessed sin affected him physically, emotionally, surely spiritually, when I kept silent about it. Now, these folks have been silent for 22 years. And God won't let that happen, especially with the people group from whom Messiah is to come. Uh, He has entered into a special covenant relationship with these uh, Israelites, though they are terrible. They're idolatrous, they're rebellious, uh, they're immoral, they're all the rest. Yet God has an investment in their lives. As a covenant people, he's going to bring the Messiah through their line. And he will not let people who belong to him Just go their merry way. He loves us too much. And so he can use things at his disposal, that's everything, to arouse our otherwise sleeping consciences. That's how God operates with us too. We're his covenant people. We're part of the new covenant. And God has an interest in being glorified through our lives. There are times when we drift and don't get right with God. And he doesn't let us go. He loves us too much. And sometimes he applies rather harsh circumstances to cause us to be emptied of self convicted of sin, to repent, which means to change direction, to turn back with him. In fact, we're hoping that kind of thing happens during this week, uh, each night, that even believers would be affected by what's shared, and believers might turn from sin where needed. And so that's kind of the situation, and God's going to use something you'll see to awaken the consciences of these folks, and what he's going to use is a little something called hunger. They're hungry. There's been famine in the land. Uh, Joseph told Pharaoh that that's what's going to happen. And there was. And God's going to use that to cause movement in their lives. You'll see how it goes. Here it is, verse uh, 
1 of chapter 42, Jacob saw that there was uh, grain in Egypt. He said to his sons, why are you staring at one another? In other words, it's a dad saying, do something. He said, behold, I've heard there's grain in Egypt. Go there, buy some for us that we may live and not die. When Jacob said the word Egypt, it was simply a word that he said. It's a place. But when they heard him say the word Egypt, I assure you it had impact on their lives. It reminded them of things. That's the place to which their betrayed brother was carried off as a slave. I have to tell you, time, the mere passage of time, does not appease a guilty conscience. It doesn't work. What appeases a guilty conscience is to confess it, turn from it, and accept the Lord's forgiveness. That takes care of it. Otherwise, nothing else really works. So they hear this word, Egypt, and they're shaken up because... Time has not silenced their guilty consciences. And so, verse 3, the ten brothers of Joseph, they go down to buy grain, but uh, it's only the ten brothers. Now, there's 12. One of them is Joseph, so that totals 11. Who's the 12th? Benjamin. Uh, and why is he? It appears that, uh, that the dad here, Jacob, is going to send the ten, but not Benjamin. Why is that? And what was her name? Yeah, uh, Joseph and Benjamin had the same mother, Rachel. So all these kids had the same dad, but different moms. So J- uh, Joseph and Benjamin were brothers in the f- a fuller sense than were the other brothers. Joseph received favor <clears throat> from uh, Jacob. Uh, and so now is Benjamin, because he's the last remaining son birthed by Rachel who died in childbearing. So he said, here's the deal. Go down there, the ten of you. See if you can get us some food, but there's no way you're taking Benjamin. That's what it says, verse 4. He said, I'm afraid harm may uh, come to him. So the sons of Israel, that's another name for Jacob, they go down to Egypt to buy grain. Lots of people are doing that because the famine was in Canaan. Canaan is modern-day Israel. Canaanites live there, hence Canaan. So the famine uh, expanded out of uh, Egypt and even into Canaan. And uh, Joseph was ruler over the land, and uh, he was the one who sold to, uh, food to all the people. And Joseph's brothers came and they bowed down to him with their faces to the ground. And everyone did that. I mean, Joseph was a, an important official in Egypt. But what is more significant about the fact that his brothers bowed down to him? Correct. Genesis 37, he received a dream, the interpretation of which was. His brothers would bow down to him. I'm not sure he communicated it to them in the most uh, humble way. And uh, they resented it, for crying out loud. Uh, This is not a a complete fulfillment of the dream because um, Benjamin's not there to bow down yet. It's a partial fulfillment for now. Now, I want to tell you something. Lots of years have passed, about 22. Joseph has had a lot of time to think about all that he suffered. His brothers betrayed him. They put him in a pit to die. Then one step forward made the suggestion, we can get some money out of this deal. They sell him for some silver. Off he goes to a foreign land. There he's falsely accused of uh, sexual improprieties. And he's uh, thrown in jail under false charges. Someone in jail who Joseph helps, is supposed to 
be a help to him when he gets out, but he doesn't for like two years. I mean, for crying out loud, what would you do? Would you not? I mean, you have now the culprits here. They are defenseless. They are at your mercy. Finally, revenge is within your grasp. He, Joseph, could do whatever he wanted to to them. And I used to think all the tests he experienced prior to this were the greatest ones. But I think this one, the test of forgiveness, is the biggest one. And you will see that's exactly what he does. And how did he get to be this kind of a godly man? 22 years of character formation. Preparation of the pit, we could call it. He went through a lot of pruning. And at this time, it's not revenge he's after. It's their repentance. Why? Because he wants to be reconciled to them. But there cannot be reconciliation until they confess their sin. Almighty God wants reconciliation with us. He's done everything necessary to make it happen. But there cannot be peace with big brother Jesus until we confess our sin. That's the very thing we're praying will happen to many during this week. You will see, therefore, that not only does Joseph not seek revenge, he brilliantly plans a series of tests to uh, awaken their consciences and move them towards confession. And so uh, the text goes on, verse 7. Joseph saw his brothers. He recognized them. He disguised himself, however, spoke to them harshly. Joseph, verse 8, recognized his brothers. They didn't recognize him. Why not? Well, he was 17 years old, about, when they betrayed him. He's close to 40 now. Also, he doesn't look like a Hebrew. He uh, has no facial hair, and he shaved his head. That's that's how Egyptians did it. He's also speaking Arabic. (laughs) He's not speaking Hebrew. They have no reason to recognize him. They think he's dead. They think the one who plans to save them is dead. Keep it in mind. Gone, of no help to them. So Joseph, remembering the dreams, says, you're spies. You've come to check out the undefended parts of our land. This was not unusual. Uh, Egypt in that day was very vulnerable from the north. Canaan was to the north of Egypt. And so uh, this accusation was not unusual. They said, no way. We, just, we would just want food. We're, verse 11, we're honest men. Oh, come on. He says, no way, you're spies. They say, no, we have 12 brothers, the sons of one man. He's in Canaan. The youngest is with him today. One is no longer alive. Oh, my heaven. Can you imagine being Joseph? How does this affect your heart? One is dead. (laughs) You're not dead. You're very much alive. They counted you dead of no value to them. They severed the connection. You're very much alive. You love them. They think you're dead. So Joseph continues the test. Nope, you're spies. This is how you'll be tested. 15. Go from this place and bring your youngest brother back. Uh, Send someone over there to get him. And the rest of you will remain confined. So he puts them in prison for three days. Says to him on the third day, do this and live. I fear God. If you're really honest, let one of your brothers be confined here. The rest of you. I'll let you go. You carry grain back home. Bring your youngest brother 
to me so I can verify your words. They say to one another in verse 21, oh, man, we are guilty concerning our brother. We saw the distress he went through. He pleaded with us. We didn't listen. That's why this has come upon us. Listen, when you have unconfessed sin in your life, a guilty conscience, you think every misfortune in life is sent to you by God who's out to get you. It's a worldview guilty people have. You know you deserve something not good. So you get a flat tire, it's because of what I did. You lose your job, it's because of what I did. But that's exactly what they're, that's kind of what's happening over here. Now, uh, he did something similar to them to awaken their kind. They threw him in a pit, he throws him into jail. It's all designed to arouse this kind of thinking. We're guilty. We're guilty. And so uh, Reuben answered, verse 22, didn't I tell you we shouldn't sin against the boy? You wouldn't listen. Now comes the reckoning for his blood. They didn't know that Joseph understood. There was an interpreter between them. So, you know, he spoke Arabic, they spoke Hebrew, and the interpreter spoke both. They thought this Egyptian guy doesn't speak Hebrew, so they could they spoke Hebrew. He understood every word. That's what was going on. So what happens is this, verse 24. He turns away and cries. He wept. That's it. He couldn't handle it anymore. They're talking about, about all this. He wants nothing more than to be reconciled to them, forgive them. He wants things to be right with them. <clears throat> He's weeping. He has to take leave of them. When he comes back, he speaks to them. He takes Simeon uh, and he binds him. Before their eyes. Simeon is the one who's going to be kept in prison there. They didn't see the tears. They saw the binding. That's how it is with us and God. We don't see God cry when we hurt. We just see the hurt. We hold God responsible. What Joseph was doing looked harsh. But it had a redemptive purpose. What God often allows to come our way is harsh. But it always has a redemptive purpose. You know, God has a lot of pruning to do in our lives. What could I tell you? For Joseph to change the way he did, for his brothers to repent, for us to be more like Christ, <clears throat> citizens of heaven, different culture. A lot of stuff has to happen. God can use all kinds of things in our lives to do. We get angry at God. Sometimes we misinterpret these things and we say, oh, it's because he's punishing me. See, we do the same thing. It's human nature. No, no, no. You know what it says in Hebrews? It says, all discipline for the moment, seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. That's what it says. It's a training ground, that life. It's a training ground. So uh, they didn't see the tears. They just saw the binding of their uh, brother. So uh, verse 25, Joseph gives orders to fill their bags with grain and also restore every man's money. So they do this. One of them opens his sack in the journey and sees his money is there. He tells his brothers and they, their hearts sink. They, get ner- they tremble. They say, what is this that God has done to us? Verse 28, that God has done to us, not for us, that God has done to us. You know why they do this? They can't handle grace. This is all of grace. Their big brother who wishes to save them, Joseph, not only gave them food, he didn't take anything for it. He's able to nourish them with nothing in return. 
It's all of grace, but they're confounded by it. They can't handle grace. Can you? This is the toughest thing for us. More people would be saved if they could pay for it. Because it's free, we can't handle it. It doesn't make any sense, and we can't take credit for it. If I at least can contribute to my salvation, no, a little bit of a partnership with God, that would be cool. No way. If it isn't grace, it isn't of God. That's how he operates. That's a tough thing for us, but that's the way it is. You see, but there's no free ride. Yeah, there is. There's a free ride to heaven. Yeah. In life, you don't get nothing for nothing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You get what's called in the Bible an inexpressible gift. This is a tough one for us. That's why we choose religion. See, all religions say you have got to do something for God in order for God to respond to you. And that's what religion is. Do this, do that. Biblical Christianity is entirely different. It's not what we do for God. It's our response to what he has done for us. See the difference? Religion is an emphasis in which we try to climb upward through good things. Christianity is an emphasis in which God has extended himself downward to us. It's not about what we do for him. It's about what he did for us. He put money back in our sack. He wants to nourish us for free, and we can't handle it. So anyway, they freak out over here. So they get back to Canaan. They see Jacob. They tell him what's going on. And uh, he said, uh, they say to him, you know, the the guy down there in Egypt, the big shot, won't see us unless we bring our, our youngest brother. Jacob says, you know, you bereaved me of my children. Joseph's no more. Simeon, no more. You want to take Benjamin, too? All these things are against me. You know what's interesting? In adversity, the son, Joseph, is growing in in his faith. In adversity, the father, Jacob, is waning in his faith. Jacob is thinking, whoa, it's me. You know, everything is against me. You know, adversity has different effects on us. It, It hardens our hearts or softens them. You know what the difference is? Well, you've got to pray. You've got to pray, oh, God, when I'm missing something, losing something, pained by something, when something hurts me, I'm going to be prone to harden my heart. Oh, God, would you use this to soften my heart, not harden it? You just got to pray. I don't know any other way to deal with it. So uh, that's what he says. So verse 37, Reuben speaks up. He's the oldest. He speaks up. He said, look what he said. Verse 37, you may put my two sons to death if I do not bring him, Benjamin, back to you. Uh, Folks, um, that is called a stupid thing to say. (laughs) I mean, uh, what? Come on, Reuben. Kill my two sons if I don't bring uh, my brother Benjamin back. Come on. Why does he do it? I think he did it because he knew he needed points with his father. Reuben is the guy who slept with his father's concubine. Now, I tell you, that that is wrong on many fronts. You know what I mean? We don't have enough time to go into how wrong that is, but it was a major insult to his father, and I think Jacob remembers this. So Reuben is sort of saying, you know, I'm like the oldest. I got to step forward and be cool about this. So I'll, you know, I'll just say you can kill my two sons if I don't bring yours back. That's what's going on. But Jacob says in verse 38, no way. My son will not go down with you. His brother's dead. He alone is left. If harm befalls him, you know, you'll bring my gray hair down to Sheol. So he doesn't buy Reuben's offer because he knows it's a stupid offer. So the next chapter, famine is getting worse. 
It comes about when they finished eating what they had, uh, their father, Jacob, says to him, go back, buy us a little food. He changed. He knows he may lose Benjamin. He's fearful of it. But what choice does he have? They're going to die of starvation. So uh, verse 3, Judah speaks up now. Judah does. Not Reuben, Judah. He says, look, the man warned us, you won't see me unless your brother's with you. If you send your, our brother with us, we'll go down. If not, we're not going to go. Because he said, you won't have an audience with me unless your brother's with you. So Israel said, why do you treat me so badly? By, why did you treat me so badly? By telling the man whether you still had another brother. So I'll tell you what that is. Have you ever been in a difficult situation, one you wish you could get out of? It's really bothering you. And so as a response, you blame people for it. Yeah, that's what's going on here. Jacob is in a tough situation. He doesn't like his situation, so he says, you know what? Why don't you even open your big mouths and tell them you had another brother? So their defense, their rebuttal is, hey, 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 Dad, how did we know what was going on? The guy inquired of our family. He wanted to know about you. He wanted to know you have any other brothers. We told him, and he said, where's your younger brother? We said, well, he's back home. How do we know, how do we know that he wants us to bring the younger brother? We don't know this. That's what Judah is sort of saying over there. And Judah makes this offer, verse 9. I will be surety. Is that how you pronounce? Is it surety or surety? Surety? Are you sure? (laughs) No, I think you're right. uh, He said, I'll be surety. Judah says, if I don't bring him back, you know, you hold me responsible. That's not, he's not actually saying kill me, you know, like a Reuben-like offer. He's saying cut me out of the, the inheritance. That's pretty much what it means here, if I don't bring him back. And then he says, verse 10, look, if we didn't delay, we could have returned twice. That's Judah being a little sarcastic. So then their father, Israel, Jacob, says to him, all right, if it has to be this way, do this. Take some goodies from the land with you. Carry it down to the man. Give him a present. Take this. A little bomb. Bomb is a resin that comes from trees. It could be used for medicinal purposes. Have you ever heard bomb of Gilead? These trees grow in an area in Israel called Gilead. That's the Golan Heights. Interesting. So take some of this stuff, he says, and a little honey, aromatic gum, and myrrh. Myrrh is very important to the Egyptians because they used it in the embalming process. Take some pistachio nuts. What's with that, you say? Well, that was a rare delicacy in that day. And then almonds. You know what Jacob's doing? He's saying, I was in trouble one time with my brother Esau some years ago. And I thought he was going to come to get me for how I mistreated him. And so I gave him a bunch of gifts, and he was cool. So (laughs) Jacob is into this strategy. I can appease Joseph. He didn't know it was Joseph. I can appease the guy in Egypt by giving him a bunch of gifts. I'm going to tell you, it's human nature. We're much more prone to try to win the favor of the one who is seeking to save us by giving him things (laughs) than simply by receiving what he wants to give us freely. Much, much more prone. That's why uh, members of religions all over the world, they'll cut themselves, they'll do this, they'll do that, they'll bleed, they'll, whatever it is. Uh, in our country, we do maybe more civilized things. Who the heck knows? But it's all an attempt to give presence um, to the one who is our big brother and wants nothing more than to be at peace with us. So this is what Jacob, Jacob does. And so as if Joseph needs his gifts. You know, he's like the richest guy in Egypt. So... Uh, 
He says, verse 12, take double the money in your hand. In other words, take back the money he put in your sacks along with your money. Take off. May God grant you compassion. And uh, so they, they do this. They go down to Egypt. They meet with Joseph. Verse 16, when Joseph saw Benjamin, he said uh, to his house steward, bring him into the house. We're going to eat at noon. They were afraid, naturally. Oh, my goodness. What is this guy up to that he wants to invite us to lunch? And verse 19, they come to Joseph's house steward. They speak to him. And they tell him the whole story about the money in their sacks. They didn't steal it. It was just put in their sacks. And the house steward responds in verse 23, take it easy. Be at ease. Do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has given you treasure in your sacks. Now, I want to know how that Egyptian house steward knew about the true God. What do you think? Joseph told them. I've got to tell you something. Uh, I think our life purpose is easy to figure out and twofold. Uh, first part, it is to relate to God personally. To relate to God personally. Second, to reflect God publicly. That's our life purpose. Relate to him personally. Reflect God publicly. And we can fulfill our life's purposes through thick and thin. In prosperity as well as in adversity. Nothing can shake us from our life's purpose if we choose that to be our life's purpose. Joseph related to God personally, even when in the pit, and reflected God publicly, even while in Egypt. Folks, nothing can stand in the way of our life's purpose if we see it to be what it is. The problem is some, we're persuaded to think our life's purpose is to be happy. If that's the case, we are pretty much all failing miserably. That's not the purpose. There are happy times. I got that. But that's not the life's purpose. It is to relate to God personally. And sometimes hunger drives us to him. And it is to reflect God publicly. So anyway... Joseph did this. All right. So then they're brought into the house. They're going to eat with Joseph. Joseph comes home. And verse 27, he asks them about their welfare. Is your father well? And they say, yeah. He sees his brother, verse 29, Benjamin. He says, is this your youngest brother? Uh, He said, may God be gracious to you, my son. Then Joseph, verse 30, hurries out. He's crying again. He was deeply stirred over his brother. He sought a place to weep. He entered the chamber and wept there. Jesus wept. He's strong. He has a soft heart. He's an iron fist in a velvet glove. He uses his power to move us into closer relationship with him, not against us. Joseph is a type of foreshadowing of our big brother, Jesus. He seems harsh at times, but he's weeping as we heard. He weeps. Well, then he washed his face. He came out, controlled himself. He served them, uh, and they served the meal. Verse 32, look at this. They served him by himself and them by themselves, and the Egyptians who ate with him by themselves. Why? Well, because the Egyptians couldn't eat bread with the Hebrews, for that is loathsome. To the Egyptians. So I've got to tell you a couple things. 
Ancient Egyptian society was one of the most racist on earth. Historians report this to us. Why? The Egyptians thought they were direct descendants of the gods. That means everybody else is much lower down on the totem pole. They were racist. What is racism? Racism says, uh, your group is different than my group. Therefore, my group must be superior to your group. You see how we go from different to superior, inferior? How does that happen? That's called sin. It's in every one of us. Racism will not be eradicated this side of heaven. What can I tell you? It's not going to happen. But there will be no racism in heaven. That's one of the reasons why it's heavenly. Everyone is subject to racism. There's no people group, particular one, that's immune from it. It's usually the people group in power who can do more with their racist inclinations. That's why other people groups want to supplant them and be in power, and they end up pretty much doing the same. It's human nature. It's not good. But I want to show you uh, 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 how God used it. Now, now the e- Egyptians, again, thought themselves superior descendants of the gods, but also they hated shepherds. The Hebrews were shepherds. Why did they hate shepherds? Because the shepherds messed around with the animals the Egyptians worshipped. See what I mean? So later in Genesis 46, you're going to see something. It's this. Uh, Joseph's people moved from Canaan to Egypt. They moved down there. And they settled in Egypt in a place called Goshen. It was a ghetto. It was a Jewish ghetto. But a pretty cool ghetto. What's up with all this? I'll tell you what what God did. God used hunger to get them out of Canaan. Why? Because the Canaanites were there. And the Hebrews were into marrying and worshiping Canaanite gods. This is the line of Messiah, folks. Almighty God is preserving it for, for us so we can see Jesus. So God uses hunger to move the Hebrews out of Canaan. And then he uses racism to keep the Egyptians away from them. The Egyptians would never marry a Jew. And the Jews would not be prone to worship the Egyptian gods because they didn't have much interaction with them. They were in the ghetto. So God used hunger and racism to accomplish his purposes. I'm not saying either is good. Don't misunderstand. I'm just saying almighty God can use anything to accomplish his good purposes. So that's kind of what happens. So then what happens, verse 33, they all sit down before Joseph. But here's how they sit. The firstborn, according to his birthright, and the youngest according to his youth. And the men looked at one another in astonishment. Look at this. This is unbelievable. There's 11 guys, brothers, to be seated. Somehow, they are seated in birth order from oldest to youngest. They're freaking out. They're saying, oh, my goodness, the gig is up. Be sure our sin has found us out. I mean, everything is working inside of them. Are you kidding me? A mathematician worked this out, and he said that the probability, the odds of placing 11 brothers in their precise order of birth is something like one in 40 million. They know, ooh, no one's that good. This is not a chance. How does he know this about us? How does he know? Not only that, verse 34 Joseph takes portions to them from his own table. But Benjamin's portion was five times as much as theirs. Five times. Why do you do that? How is this a test? Look, 
because Joseph years ago was given a favored position in envy, look what they did to him. He wants to see now, do they still have this inclination to be envious of a, a favored brother? So he bestows five times as much on Benjamin to see if they've changed over the years. And they do. Look, they feasted and drank freely with him. They weren't bitter, angry, or upset. They celebrated and rejoiced. And soon you'll see a totally different attitude towards Benjamin. They changed over the years. And then we get to verse 44. He tells his steward, put stuff in their sacks, food and all that. Give them their money back. And then verse 2. Put my cup, silver cup, in the sack of the youngest. Whoa. And they take off. They go out of the city. They're not far off. Joseph sends his house steward to say, why have you repaid evil for good? Isn't this the cup, the one from which my Lord drinks and which he indeed uses for divination? You've done wrong in doing this. So what's up with that? The Egyptians had a practice called hydromancy. Hydro like water. Hydromancy. They take a cup, silver, gold, or a bowl, put clear water in it, and then they would put either oil or flecks, uh, specks of uh, flex, specks of silver or gold, and they would see the patterns of light on it, and from that they would discern the future. So that's like a big deal. Did Joseph actually practice divination? Maybe. You know, God didn't really speak about it until Deuteronomy when he said, lay off, don't do that stuff. But I don't think he did. I think he had the cup. He's a big shot in Egypt. I don't think he used it for divination, but he's surely using it to get their attention now. So it's planted in Benjamin's sack. So uh, they say in verse 7, what's up, my Lord? Why why are you saying these things? We didn't do it. Uh, And they say in verse 9, here's the deal. With whomever of your servants it's found, let him die. Man, you got to be careful what you say. And we'll also be the Lord's uh, slaves. So that's what they do. So a search begins in verse 12. And look how it happens. It begins with the oldest, ends with the youngest. So it starts with the oldest, you see? No silver cup in my sack. Baby, I'm off the hook. And then they go to the next guy, the next guy. They go to the last one, the youngest. This is like a long, drawn-out thing, you know? They're kind of relieved. And then it's in Benjamin's sack. (gasps) And now what are they going to do? You know, they could say, Ben, this is bad for you. (laughs) Shalom. And they could be on their way. I mean, listen, they, they, they betrayed Joseph earlier on. He wants to see. This is a test. He wants to see how will they respond to Benjamin. Oh, no. They rent their clothes and they're freaking out. They're not going to abandon him. They've changed. They tear their clothes. Verse 13, and they come back to Joseph's house. And then uh, in verse uh, 18 on is the longest Recorded speech in Genesis, and perhaps the most heartfelt. In this speech, Judah steps up to the plate. Amazing. Because Judah also stepped up to the plate in suggesting they sell Joseph. He was the guy who came up with the idea. Also, Judah, he was a hardened bad guy. Do you remember Judah had relations with a woman he thought was a prostitute? Turns out to be his daughter-in-law. He wants to have her burned. Remember all this stuff? 
This is not exactly your choir boy. How does he change? I'm telling you, God is using all these circumstances to change his heart. So now Judas steps up. He approaches Joseph. My Lord, may your servant please speak. And he goes on. And he makes the most um, magnificent intercession on behalf of his brother, his younger brother, Benjamin. Verse 34, how shall I go up to my father if the lad is not with me for fear that I see the evil that would overtake my father? Folks, I believe this is a grand illustration of the intercession of our big brother Jesus on our behalf. He stands before the father on our behalf and with every ounce of his being pleads for our acquittal and pardon just as Joseph did. Now, here's what's interesting. Judah did not realize uh, the one he is speaking to is his brother. He thinks his brother is dead to him. He can't count on his brother to save him because his brother is dead, he thinks. And so too many today think The crucifixion of this Jesus is the last word. End of story. Oh, no, it's not. The empty tomb is the end of the story. So many think the one who wishes to be our big brother to his younger, really hungry, desperately sinful brothers, a number think, but he's dead to us. If this Jesus is not alive from death, how could he save me? He can only save me, even if he wanted to, for as long as he's alive. Could I ask you a question? How long will Jesus live? Forever. Therefore, we are saved to the uttermost. All this is not just a historical story. It's given to instruct us with regard to exactly what Yeshua has done for us. It's the same kind of intercession you see here with Judah, by the way, uh, the tribe from which Messiah would come. And I, I, w- I want to uh, share this with you in, uh, in closing, but then I want to say something else uh, that doesn't really relate to this lesson. Um, In chapter 45, you're going to see the grand conclusion of this story. I've left it for Brother Chuck because I am a good guy. (laughs) It's reconciliation. It's harmony. It's family solidarity. It's weeping, crying on each other's shoulders. They're together again. There's nothing between them. That's a foreshadowing of what it will be like with us. I'm telling you when we see big brother Jesus in heaven, what a reunion. Nothing to fear. There's nothing between us anymore, don't you see? So, but I want you to see something. It wasn't uh, anything they did that will lead to that reconciliation, which we'll see in chapter 45. It wasn't their confession of guilt. It wasn't their sacrifices. It wasn't their elaborate gifts, you know, that their dad told them to bring that brought about their salvation. You know what it was? It was the suffering and mercy of their brother, Joseph. That's what it was. And what brings us our salvation? Sacrifices we make, promises, vows, gifts. <clears throat> what has brought us salvation is none of the above. It's the suffering and mercy 
of our big brother Jesus. He paid it all. This is the hardest thing for us to accept. The hardest thing. We cannot add to the sufferings of Jesus Christ on our behalf. We cannot. He suffered enough. He need not be crucified again. We do not have to exact a penalty from our own lives in order (laughs) to obtain our salvation. He's been penalized enough, just as Joseph was. Because of Joseph's suffering and humiliation, he was moved to an exalted position in Egypt. Because of the suffering of the Lord Jesus Christ, his humiliation, he was elevated to the right hand of the Father. You see, he can intercede on our behalf for as long as he lives. And because he lives, we can face tomorrow. Don't you want people who will begin coming tonight to have that reunion, that peace, uh, that uh, cleansed conscience? I didn't say sinless conscience. I just say cleansed conscience. There's no need for guilt. I love it when the scriptures say, for thou hast forgiven, it says this, the guilt of our sin. See, the guilt of our sin, emotional, oh, it's terrible, terrible, terrible thing. And the Lord Jesus wants to take that all away. Don't we wish that be the case for the many who will come tonight? Okay, I want to end this lesson here and just, but we won't go the full uh, duration of the class. We're, we're going to get out early because I, I held the other classes way too long. So this is penance. I'm doing penance. <laughs> gifts, giving gifts. So here's the deal. Last week, I I spoke to you about dreams because dreams were the theme, Joseph's dreams and Pharaoh's dreams and so on. And I made the uh, statement that I do not think uh, dreams are the primary means by which God communicates with us now, Uh, that in the time when dreams were more prevalent, it was before we had 66 books of Scripture, you see. It was earlier on. And I said, I'm not in a position to say God can't speak to us through dreams anymore. I just said you should be careful about it. Make sure it's consistent with Scripture. But also, no dream a person has can be verified by others with whom it is shared. So if I share with you a dream I believe God gave me or vice versa, I hope I'm respectful in listening to you. I hope you are in listening to me, but I really can't jump up and down and say hallelujah. How do I know that what you think God gave you is really from God. I mean, he gave it to you, not to me, right? I can't validate a subjective experience. That's the beauty of Scripture. The Scripture is something we could all share in. We can gather around chapter 42, 3, and 4, agree or disagree. It's an objective thing. You see what I mean? But personal experiences, I didn't say they don't happen. I just said they can't be verified. Therefore, For people to be writing books and selling books about their personal experiences and for we to be buying them makes no sense to me because it could be based on something that's not actually true. For instance, we're seeing today a proliferation of, uh, they're actually calling it heavenly tourism where apparently people die, uh, you know, go to heaven, come back to tell us about it. What kind of a cruel God would pull that off? That doesn't happen, folks. Uh, and, and it's interesting, all those who visit heaven, it's usually at a point of a, a, like an automobile accident or you're in a hospital operating room where drugs are being pumped into you or at an accident scene, if you have a severed appendage, you know, you can go into shock, you can freak out, oh my goodness, there's my leg or whatever. So a good God releases um, 
neurotransmitters, they're brain chemicals. It's almost like a divine anesthetic to help you get through the trauma. You know what a lot of people report seeing during those times? Angels, music, hearing music, seeing a, great, a bright light. But that's a shared experience with non-believers as well as believers. Uh, that's a good God doing that kind of a thing. But they didn't go to heaven, no. Someone I told you just ad- admitted that what I told you, a young boy, I went to heaven, I didn't really go to heaven. The Southern Baptist Convention, I'm happy about this, uh, just made a resolution to discourage its uh, people from purchasing books and movies made about these books, about all these uh, visits to heaven, because there's no biblical verification for it. It's just something God doesn't do. And then on top of it, when the reports of that heavenly visitation conflict with Scripture, holy Toledo, what are you going to believe? That person's vision or the Bible? So you can say, well, no, but there are dreams in the Bible. You better hang on, folks. That's before we had 66 books of written scripture. Things are, things are different. So, so I would be very, very careful uh, uh, about, uh, about too, too quickly embracing someone's subjective experience as being valid. I also would be careful about being too quick to dismiss it. I'm just saying you can't, you, you just got to listen. You can't weigh in on it. You've been, You've got to say, I don't know. But, but that's, why, that's why we want to emphasize Scripture. Now, this being the case, someone in one of our classes last week asked a very good question. Stuart, if you're right, and he doesn't believe I am. So that's why he did this. Uh, he said, how do you explain Joel 2, which is repeated by Peter in Acts 2? Now, I'll tell you what Joel 2 is. Joel 2. Uh, I'm just sharing with this in case someone hits you with this. Joel 2 says, it'll come about after this, I'll pour out my spirit on all mankind. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Peter repeats that word for word in Acts chapter 2 on Pentecost. What's up? Well, Peter is not saying Joel's prophecy is fulfilled. He's saying, you know the Holy Spirit that God, through Joel, spoke about as manifesting himself one day in this marvelous way. That's the same Holy Spirit who's manifesting himself here on Pentecost. You see, because the Lord's followers were were hearing each other's languages, and they were being accused of being drunk. You're drunk. Peter said, it's 9 o'clock in the morning. I mean, would they get up at 6 and start drinking? But then he also says... He refers to Joel 2. He's not saying Joel 2 is being fulfilled in this day. He's saying what you think is due to booze is the manifestation of the Holy Spirit, the same Holy Spirit Joel spoke about. Well, if it's not fulfilled, you know, you, you'll dream dreams. If that's not fulfilled in Acts 2, when is it fulfilled? When, folks, you've got to read the rest of what Joel said. In the same paragraph, it says, I will display wonders in the sky and on the earth blood fire, and columns of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Folks, those atmospheric conditions have not yet happened. But that's part of Joel's prophecy in two. So if someone says, no, no, the Bible says we're going to dream dreams, well, then you've got to also have all this upheaval in the atmosphere. But that hasn't happened. Well, when does it happen? Tribulation period. Tribulation, particularly towards the end. It says, it says, before the great and awesome day of the Lord. What is that? 
That's the return of the Lord Jesus to judge and also establish his millennial reign on earth. The tribulation saints going through all kinds of terror will be imbued with a dramatic manifestation of the Holy Spirit uh, prior to the return of the Lord and the atmosphere is going to be all shaken up. The book of Revelation tells us about that. So Acts 2 is not a fulfillment. It's a hint, but not a fulfillment of Joel 2. So I'm I share all this to just simply make my case. Dreams are not the primary means by which God communicates with us today. Therefore, please be careful about uh, the Southern Baptist Convention. Uh, you know, Lifeway did a study. Uh, by the way, they removed from all their bookshelves all these trips to heaven books. Um, they say uh, it's quite amazing. They want to know who's buying these things. We are. Evangelicals. Really bad. Uh, uh, I think we're on the verge of apostasy. You know, the most important spiritual gift, the most necessary one today is the gift of discernment. We seem not to have it. Anybody tells a story, they make a movie and we run to it. I didn't say all movies. Richard was telling me about a movie which sounds like a wonderful one. Please don't misunderstand what I'm saying. I'm just saying not all movies that seem to be Christian movies are really healthy for you. They're not really biblical. Don't, you know, why are you spending six bucks? Is that what it costs? Maybe more? Nine dollars? Oh, my. I'll tell you lies for half. I'll lie to you for half. I'm for four fifty. I'll give you all the lies you want. So, folks, so just... Just really, listen, I promise to close here. Uh, uh, the Lord brings a couple of his followers to the Mount of Transfiguration. Oh, my heavens. His uh, divinity is pulled, his humanity, excuse me, is pulled back. They see his unmasked divinity, Mount of Transfiguration. Peter was one of the guys there, right? Later on in Peter, I wrote this down because someone asked me last week. I couldn't remember the reference. I'll bet you, you people, some of you people know, but it's in, in case you're looking, it, it, it's in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 and on. 2 Peter 1, 16 and on. Peter says, now we have a more sure testimony. If you read the context, he's talking about the word of God. Peter was there. You talk about a personal subjective experience that blow your socks off. Holy moly. He's there in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ and his, un- his humanity is pulled back. But Peter says, you want to know something? As, drama- as unbelievable as that was, what we have is even a more certain and sure testimony. And that's God's word. Peter said, don't be jumping around over my subjective experience as real and powerful as it was. You have the word of God. Read it. First Peter. Uh, excuse me. Second Peter chapter 1, verses 16 to... 21. Okay, so all that is to answer a question that was raised uh, uh, last week about the, the dream thing. You can have them. Please don't miss it. But no one's going to say, yeah, but uh, I'm hearing that many Muslim people are having dreams of Jesus and are being converted. I, I don't doubt that. I mean, listen, God has to speak to Muslim people in a very striking, marvelous way. I mean, they're not exposed readily to the gospel as we are. So, so if they're seeing the Lord speaking to them in dreams, I don't deny that at all. But notice, that's for evangelism, not discipleship. That doesn't say now Muslims are going to grow through dreams. No, 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 no. They got a glimpse of Jesus, perhaps, through a dream. 
But that's never the means by which you grow. The way you grow is now we've got to teach him how to study the Bible. That's how it works. See, it's not the same thing. And you know in your heart, I'm right. <laughs> Maybe not. Okay, folks, um, we should go now. Doors open tonight at 6 o'clock. You can come at 6, one hour before 7. Each night, uh, we're going to baptize and have music before the service. We're going to start at 6.30. We're hoping that those who come forward tonight will be ready for baptism tomorrow night. We'll see. We're going to speak with them. If they are, we're going to baptize them beginning at 6.30. We're going to do this every night. So you can come early. We'll open the doors, take a seat, and enjoy what happens even before the service. Each night is at 7, except for Saturday night, which starts at 6. James Robeson, 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 or as... uh, I think Brother Chuck says Robinson, which is really great. Um, he'll be speaking Saturday night. It'll be uh, a different than our normal Saturday before Easter Sunday service. We usually do an Easter Sunday service Saturday night so that our regular people can come Saturday night and make room for visitors the next day. Since that's not happening, we want to invite our regulars to the 8 o'clock service. Did our pastor speak about it? He's really just asking us to help out. Uh, 8 o'clock, beautiful service, same as the one at 9.30 and 11.15, but it's unlikely that guests are going to come that early. And apparently, uh, from our pastor's point of view, we don't matter that much. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? <laughs> apparently, we're expendable. So, so there you go. I mean, they got spots for new people, but we got to walk miles. That's just the way it is. I'm just saying. So anyway, here's the deal. We have um, a uh, sunrise service at 6.30, you can come to the sunrise service if you'd like and just come in at 8 o'clock to the worship service, which will be uh, a beautiful service as it normally is. So that's it. Anyone have any questions? If you're signed up to be, uh, or, or want to be a decision counselor, even if you didn't sign up, come tonight to the Connection Center. We'll be there. We'll give you a lanyard that says counselor, and we'll fill you in on what's required. Anyone have any questions about what's happening? Yes. Yes. Oh, the blood moon. There we go. So here, our, our, our wonderful brother there uh, has an opinion about the blood, and you're entitled to that. Wrong. What are you talking about? Opinion. Okay, but it's a free country, and we love each other. Lord Jesus, thank you for the wonderful family you've given us, the worldwide body of Christ. We're different, and we love each other. We're brothers, and we're sisters, and we help each other and learn from one another. And oh, God, how I wish that this notion of group superiority would be eradicated from our midst. There's no such thing. We're all created in your image. Oh, God. And so I pray that uh, you would render us to be pure of racism in our midst. What a testimony that would be to the world. Who would say, behold, or they be different, how they love one another. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for revealing in uh, in... A, a, in, in, an infancy kind of a form for revealing to us in Genesis through Joseph and Judah what you have done for us. Savior, thank you for saving us freely. Thank you for interceding for us before the Father. We are grateful. We want to spread the wealth tonight. So, oh God, we pray you would be glorified. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, God bless you folks. Look at 11 minutes early. Wow. <laughs>